Hello, this is Swami Janeshwar. This recording is on the Sermon on the Mount, Non-Dualism, and Yoga. The presentation was at the Center for Non-Dualism in May 2008. Please see the website, centerfornondualism.org, and my personal website at swamij.com. I hope you enjoy the presentation. I'll preface. There are over 39,000 Christian denominations. This is according to the International Bulletin of Missionary Research, a Christian source. It's not my number, it's their number. Each denomination has its own interpretations of the teachings. There wouldn't be so many thousands of them. If they have the right that thousands of different denominations have the right to interpret those teachings the way they want, then I claim the same right of interpretation that they have claimed. I claim the right to have my own views. I claim the right to say that Jesus teaches the non-dual perspective. I claim the right to believe that he suggests people seek self-realization, direct experience. I claim the right to believe that he thinks all of us are one. And I claim the right to believe that Jesus was a supreme yoga teacher. So, it's coming from that place. that I want to go through some of the passages. The spirit of this, of these passages and the comments that I want to share with you, is the hope that you will read these words and that in your reading of these words, you too claim the same right, which I know you already have, and you look carefully to find your interpretations of these words. One of the reasons I'm saying this is that I find it very, very common that we, in America, we are raised in some form or another of a Christian church, but 85% of America is Christian, something like that. And then when you come to see that you don't like what they're saying, what happens is it gets thrown out. We, we completely leave that which we grew up in. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't leave and that we should stay stuck where we are when we know that it's time to move on. But to use that often used metaphor, sometimes we throw out the baby with the bathwater and we end up with unconscious stuff going on that ends up being called stress. We end up with an unconscious, sometimes conscious, confusion because we have been conditioned and we have been programmed and we have never made peace with the teachings themselves. We simply rejected. We have fallen into the trap of making a new judgment ourselves that they are bad and we are good or something like that. And it can happen in the unconscious mind so easily so what I'm inviting you to do is revisit some of the words and find your own meaning. 
I told myself for years, one of these days I'm going to sit down with the New Testament and read the whole thing, every word. I said, because I'm not sure that I've ever actually really done that. I've, I've been in and out of it here and there. I said, but I don't know that I've ever actually sat down and read the whole thing, every word, page after page after page. And I said, I want to do that one of these days. So I sat by the Ganges and sat down by the Ghat, just by the ashram, and often and in the room, reading. And on the roof. And when I started, I said to myself, I want to find in here what speaks to me from this perspective of non-dualism and yoga. I had seen other people's books and articles on their interpretation on how yoga and non-dualism was in the Bible. But I hadn't looked myself. So I set out with that goal in mind. And I read the whole thing and I found a bunch of wonderful things. But when I was finally done with it, and I saw this when I ran into it, it caught my attention. But I said, be open. I made a note to myself. Be open and see where it goes when I get to the last word of the Bible. Do you know what the last word is? Maranatha. The last instruction of the Bible, of Revelations, says simply, come Lord. Come. It doesn't say all of the other stuff says, when I leave here, I'm going there. <laughs> or something like that. The bottom line of the whole book says, come. I kind of like that. But the thing that caught my attention along the way was passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there's footnotes referring it back to Deuteronomy in the Old Testament that says almost the same words. It says it, it mentions three things in Matthew and it mentions three things in uh, Luke. But it mentions four in uh, Mark. And I might presume that that's just a matter of how people are quoting. And here it is. It's where Jesus gives his number one and number two instructions. This, the verse just before that, Jesus was giving a lecture, talking. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these, plural. Not, so it's not just this, love your neighbor. One of my standard answers, responses, when somebody knocks on my door preaching to me or stopping me in the park or saying something on the street like this and wants to have a debate, I tell them very simply, I'm having a little bit of trouble still with instruction number two, <laughs> which is love your neighbor as yourself. And I saw, saw all of these other instructions that are, that are in there 
I, I have a little trouble with those because I, I still can't get number two down. And so when I can't get number two down, it causes me to move back to number one. And my reading of this is that the better job I do with number one, the more naturally number two will come. And then maybe all the other stuff will kind of make sense. So my emphasis is on number one. What was number one? Well, it seems to have two verses only that is in this part number one. The most important one, answer Jesus, is this. Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. There are three names used there, Lord, God, and one. Are we to infer that this means polytheism? That there's someone called Lord, there's someone called God, and there's someone called one? I don't think so. My interpretation, playfully said, is what you call Lord, in fact, is that absolute one. And what you call God is that one non-dual reality. Because that one non-dual reality is all there is. If we say that there is one, that's giving it a characteristic. If I say that reality is not two, it's a different statement. Because as soon as I say it's one, I've given it a characteristic. It's like saying that the waves in the ocean are all one wave, even though I'm seeing multiple waves. If you turn around and you say it another way, that I see multiple waves, I see multiple faces in front of me, I can acknowledge this reality. And if I say to you, or you say to me, we are connected, so therefore we're one. Well, connectedness means multiplicity. Doesn't mean one. Connected is a wonderful thing, but the starting point is that we're all individuals and we're connected with the lines connecting the dots, right? It's still not the other. So the statement gets used that says whatever reality ultimately is that I cannot seem to describe or find words for, one thing I'm pretty sure of is it's not two. There's a difference. And that one leaves you resting in the mystery. And that's the mystery that you get to know in very deep stillness and silence. So is it polytheism? I don't think so. Does it mean one, there's one guy over there and we're over here? I maintain that if we even use the word God, in my opinion, God is infinite. Well, if God is over there and the rest of us are over here, that means God is finite. You see, because I'm not included in God. And if I'm not included in God, then that's less than infinite. Maybe that's just playing with words. But if God is truly infinite, it, I don't have to use the word God. Use any word I want. But if I use the word God, if God is truly infinite, then is it possible that anything is excluded from God? No. So if I say I'm a good guy and they're a bad guy, and so therefore they're, obviously they're not part of God because God is good, well then there's something missing in my philosophy. I need to keep searching. If I really come to believe that this God business is infinite, is limitless, 
is non-dual, then I have to find a different way to account for how it is that there appears to be bad guys along with appearing to be good guys. Does that mean God is bad? Well, if God or truth is a non-dual reality, then there's no conflict whatsoever. If I take one of these pens here and I write some really nasty words over there with the ink, and you go, oh, you shouldn't write that. And if I write over here some really nice, pretty, inspiring poetry words, you say, oh, that's lovely. They're both made of ink. There's essentially no difference between the words. The reason there's a difference is in my perception of how I've arranged the ink. I'm not trying to say that I believe we shouldn't arrange our ink well out here in the world. We should. We should do a good job of arranging our ink. But if we hold it in some way like that, if we do our spiritual or philosophical explorations in some sort of context like that, we will find a resolution to what appears to be a paradox. And that ultimately there is no problem with the appearance of good and evil. Because there's only one. The next sentence says, Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Note in the sentence structure, and I understand that it was translated into English, but I don't think this was put in. It uses the word all four times. In our grammatical structure, we could write it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, comma, soul, comma, mind, comma, and strength. That's not the way it was done. It said all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. What state would I or you be in if you suddenly, in a moment, had access, just access, to 100% of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength? What if for just one moment, none of your heart, soul, mind, or strength were being dissipated or distracted by all the garbage stuff in the mind or all the data input from the sensory input from this external world? What state would you be in if you had access to it and you could direct your heart, soul, mind, and strength towards that one absolute non-dual reality, source, truth, whatever you want to call it. What state would you be in? Enlightened, samadhi, nirvana, turiya, I don't care what you call it. You would be capital T there, something, capital S source. <laughs> Let's not fight over the names. So, it says all. Now, you know what? I'm claiming the right to interpretation. Do you know what one of the Sanskrit words for all is? Yoga. It means union. Yoga means union of that which was never divided in the first place. Yes, it means integration of the body and the breath of the mind, but that's a surface level of what yoga is about. Ultimately, this is the kind of union that yoga is referring to. That's not said in opposition to people that are doing yoga in health spas as a physical fitness exercise. It's a wonderful work, a wonderful thing to do. But there's a higher meaning of yoga, and that's what this is. Notice also that it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Soul? No room for a cop-out. You see? 
We got to do each one of them. Get the idea? Now you see, this is not in the Sermon on the Mount. Oops. I claim the right to read it how I want. In fact, it's not in the Sermon on the Mount. In terms of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Where this is mentioned in Matthew, it's in chapter 22. Later. I don't know why they put it in that order. Maybe they give you a little preliminary stuff before the guy finally raises the question of all the commandments, which is the most important. You've got to have a little groundwork, listening to a little bit of the lecture first, and then you finally say, wait a minute, I don't know, what are you really talking about? What is it you really want me to do? And then you get the punchline. Okay? So, that said, here's some of the things that uh, get talked about. In Matthew 5, in the Bible, I'm not breaking up the sections. There's little headings in there. So there's a section on the Beatitudes. And it has things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I note that one who feels the shortage of spirit feels a longing in the heart. The longing is for realization of our unity with the non-dual reality. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning means to express grief or sorrow. The longing for non-dual realization brings feelings such as these. They just naturally come. When you're longing, you're going to feel grief and sorrow. This is the meaning of tapas, the fire that is the third niyama of yoga. Tapas means fire. In different systems, they're different words. One says fire means burning in hell. In yoga, in Vedanta, in Tantra, the traditions I know, tapas means fire. It means the emotional burning away when you're starting to let go of your bad habits. Every one of us knows what that's like. When you're letting go of a, of a relationship that you needed to let go of, you're letting go of a bad habit, and there's something about the habit that so grabs you that you have trouble letting go of it. True? And you, there's an emotional response. That's the meaning of the fire. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek, literally, look it up. Meek means showing patience and humility, gentle. That's out of the dictionary, not my words. That's the morning of meek. It is an aspect, this is my part, this is an aspect of ahimsa, non-harming or non-pushing. And that's the foundation principle. It's the number one yama. It's the foundation principle of yoga and meditation. First and foremost, cause no harm. Don't push on everybody. First and foremost, figure out how to do it. It's not easy. Meekness has as its companion strength. And I claim the right to interpret it this way. Then there is a section. Again, their headings in the Bible call on the salt and the earth. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. There's a metaphor in the Upanishads about salt being put in the water. You still have the salt, but you have to taste the water to find the salt. You indeed are the salt. When that is forgotten, you get trampled by the karmas of external life. There, salt is used in a metaphor for pure consciousness, truth, source, whatever you want to call it. Why is it so hard to find? It's like the salt that has been mixed in the water. It's mixed in everything that we're swimming around in, in this ocean of the world and the ocean of our own mind. The only way we can find the salt is not to go look for the little particles of it, the little grains, but to taste the water. And therein we will find the salt. You are the light of the world. 
That's what he says. You are the light of the world. In fact, I say, in fact, you truly are that light. You are not sinners. You are not bad. To say you are sinners is bad itself is bad teachings, in my opinion. He claims, he speaks of your true nature, which is pure light of consciousness. Then later, a couple verses down, he said, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You are all, I say, you are already perfect, perfect, but have forgotten. Remove the obstacles. Yoga is defined as yoga, chitta, vritti, nirahotaha. Yoga is the removal of all of the clutter of the mind field. And then you rest in your true nature. Then the light of your true nature will naturally shine for all to see. And so does letting my light shine before others mean I'm supposed to go out and tell everybody else? Or does it mean that if I do this thing, the light that is already there, that is who I am, will naturally shine forth? I opt for that. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It is a teaching to fulfill the goal of teaching people to seek direct experience. He's speaking of the higher teachings that still have not been lived out by people. This is my take on what is meant by I have come to not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Saying that in the ancient teachings, start with the book of Genesis. It is a tremendous book, in my opinion. It talks about how things evolve out. And if you reverse it, it shows you the way home. It came out this way, and it goes back simply reverse the process. God manifested his heaven and earth, and it was good, and the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light, and then there was all the stuff that came from the light. Well, you start from the stuff that came from the light, go to the light, go back to the sound, which is called mantra, or whatever you want to call it. Then you go back to the division, the primary duality of heaven and earth, and before that you find the absolute oneness before there was two. And that's non-dual reality. And so... To my reading of this, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's saying, look, guys, you've been told this for a very long time, and you're not doing All I'm doing is coming along to help you see it again. And so, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. To be least simply, in my opinion, to be least simply means that the goal of non-dual relation realization has not yet been attained. Those who practice meditation and contemplation do attain experience. The greatness is not of the ego, but of the realization of the infinite. It's called maha in Sanskrit, or mahavidya, the great knowledge. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yoga speaks of non-attachment to objects, or vairagya. Paravairagya is non-attachment to the gunas, the subtle, subtlest building blocks of the universe. doesn't matter if you don't know the words. You must go beyond the mere preachers and religionists. Very few go beyond atheism or the worship of a teacher. Very few will go there. You must have your own philosophy of life, though it is very useful to validate or confirm it with trusted or respected sources. So we've got to be better than the do better. And, and here I don't mean qualitatively. Here, please understand the context of better. We have to go beyond the preachers, the Pharisees, and the teachers. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras points out that the way the mind works, it is the same whether we do a negative act, get another to do it, or we merely approve of it. Why? Because the effect is in our own mind field. 
it doesn't mean that if I think of hurting somebody out here that there's no literal difference out here if I go you know, punch somebody in the nose, but in terms of my mind. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. There's the Sanskrit contemplation, sarvam kalvidam brahman. Everything is that one absolute reality. This is the formula of non-dual realization. Purify and surrender. That's what it says. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and get your gift. In my opinion, it's a universal principle. And the gift is that realization. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Yuck. Karma is inescapable. Out is realization of the absolute. You get out by dealing with your karma. Then you have freedom from the bondage of karma and can realize. It need not be negative like paying, but it's just how it works. Samskaras are the deep impressions, driving actions, or karmas. The samskaras will definitely play out or be burnt out. It is by the city of the great king, the king is the absolute oneness that lives in three cities. Do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Accept that all is a manifestation of the one. It is only because of avidya or ignorance does one strike another. Accept the reality of karma, work through karma, and shoot your karmic arrows well. Love for enemies. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because everybody is a wave in the ocean. It does not mean you approve of all actions and thought, yet everyone is pure consciousness, light at the core. You may be sons of your Father in heaven. Indeed, you and I say, indeed, you and the Father are one and the same. All, everyone, is of that same unmanifest Father. Father is the stuff. Mother is the manifesting process. My favorite example is the ink. Ink is the father. What you draw with the ink is mother. Once you draw the picture or you write the poetic words, there's no difference between the ink and the words. They're one and the same. Look at it differently. Well, of course, that's ink, and this is the beauty of the words. And yet they're one and the same. One is called mother, and the other is called father. And it's not that father is better than mother. In Sanskrit, they speak of that when you write in Devanagari script in Sanskrit, Shiva without Shakti is Shava, and Shava is Shavasana, the corpse posture. Shiva without Shakti is a corpse. There's no life. In Genesis, it speaks of Adam and Eve. If you look at the footnotes, you'll find that it says the meaning of Adam is ground, and the source of Eve is living, hence the living ground. No living, no ground, or only ground. I'm going to go to the back to see if there's a nice little something here to close with. Let's see what they put it. Let's see what they put at the end of this thing. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. I claim the door is found in deep stillness and silence in the heart center or the eyebrow center. Repeatedly returning here to that stillness is knocking, just going there. 
Asking is contemplation and prayer. Do three things. Ask, seek, and knock. And then the door will be open. So I'll stop there. Thank you.